he had run out of gas just south of the bridge on going over from Liberty, you know, and I said, okay, no problem. So, you know, you do what you need to do, right? That's what we do. Have you ever thought about that phrase, though, friend in need? Let's, let's take a look at it for just a minute if we could. So a friend in need, is it a friend in need is a friend indeed or is it indeed? Which is it? Both. Somebody said both. That, both's usually a good answer to things like that, I think. But Okay, both. All right. It, how many think is the first one? We'll just vote. How many think is the second one? Okay. Well, this, this phrase has actually been around a long time, longer than, than I thought. And uh, it's actually been, well, let's keep parsing this out for a minute. Okay, a friend, is it a friend when you are in need or a friend who is in need? Which when you're in need? <laughs> How many think is the first one? You got to vote. Come on, you have to have an opinion. How many think it's the second one? Okay, let's keep going here. So if, if I, I worked all this out, if there's four ways to look at this. A friend, when you are in need, is indeed a true friend. Could be that one, right? Could be a friend, when you are in need, is someone who's prepared to act and show it. That would be indeed. Or it could be a friend who is in need is indeed a true friend. Or it could be a friend who is in need is someone who is prepared to act and show it indeed. Which one of those do you think it is? How many think it's number one? Yeah, you don't really care, do you? It's just me. How many, how many think it's number two? Zach, what do you think? Just put up a finger. How many fingers? You put up 10 fingers. That doesn't count. Okay. Well, here's how old this is. You won't believe this. Maybe you will. But it goes all the way back to the 3rd century BC is the first uh, kind of inter- iteration of this phrase. That would be in Latin, the amicus certus in reinserta, whatever that is. A sure friend is known when in difficulty. It's still a little confusing, though, isn't it? Is it when you're in difficulty or they're in difficulty? Still a little ambiguous, isn't it? Isn't that weird? But it's that old, and it's still kind of that way. And then it it shows up in English. The earliest appearance in English is in the 11th century, and um, it is said that that at the need, the friend is known or known. You know who your real friends are when you are in need. Okay, that all makes sense. I guess that all works. You know, as a pastor, um, I'm called on to help people all the time. It's, it's, I love it. It's something I enjoy doing, so it's, it's never a burden. But I've noticed a few things about that. I mean, there are times where um, I'm helping people from the church, and I don't even think twice about that, of course, or family, or friends, or people, you know, you meet. There's, there's a lot of things. But I do, I do in my mind go through thoughts when, when certain people are asking for help. None of you, none of you, just so you know. But, but we all kind of go through this, don't we? Because sometimes you wonder how legitimate is the need, or at times you wonder, had they done things a little different, they wouldn't really be in need. But I can't always share that because I'm just there to help, and that's enough, and I need to just help. But you wonder sometimes. Or how about when you're helping or you're, you're feeling inclined to help somebody you don't even know, or somebody, maybe a total stranger on the street corner, or, and, and you wonder sometimes, is this really the best thing? Is this helping or enabling? You wonder, don't you? You wonder sometimes, and you have limited resources, and there's other people who could be doing more with these resources, but here I am right now, and I can help now this person. I've had other experiences, and maybe you've had the same time, experiences where I've been burnt helping people. Have you ever been burnt doing that? 
where it just didn't work out or you were taken advantage of. Remember one time I was at the church. This is years ago. It was in, uh, it, I was at a church in L.A. And I got a call. How many, how many have ever heard of, of Nicky uh, Cruz? All right. You, if you don't know who that is, he was kind of the, the main character in, in um, back when Teen Challenge started. David Wilkerson, there was one main gang member he reached out to and, and all the others, and it was him. How many saw the movie with Eric Strato was okay. Well, Nicky Cruz is a real dude. You know that, right? He's an evangelist. He'd been, he'd been to our church. Okay. I had met him. I knew who he was. So I get a call one afternoon. It was late in the afternoon. No one at the office, but me. And the person on the phone says, I'm Nicky Cruz's grandson. And I'm stuck here in LA. I'm down here on Sunset Boulevard. And <laughs> I talked to that kid for probably an hour asking him questions okay, so it's this, 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 and what are you doing, and wherever. So as I'm doing that, you know, this is unfortunately before cell phones, before computers. It's not like I can send an email to somebody or call somebody and say, hey, I need to check this out. And I was kind of at a crossroads. I need to do something, but the church was closed. It's not like I could use church resources, but I thought, I do know this kid's grandfather. It sounds legit. So I went down to Sunset in L.A., Picked him up. You know, by this time, it was a Friday night, and if you've ever been there, it really starts hopping about then. I picked him up. I took him. What, what he needed was a place to stay. So I took him to a, a hotel kind of closer to our area in Long Beach, and uh, I put him up in a hotel. And I went and talked to the manager. I told him the situation, and I told him I'm paying for one night. If anything else happens, I need you to call me. And I gave him my number. And <laughs> it wasn't him. He was good, though. Oh, he was good. He was really good. And so when the manager called me, he said, I don't think this is a preacher's kid. I said, well, it could be. You know, preacher's kids have problems too, you know. And I said, he goes, I said, tell me what's going on. He said, well, things have been going on in this room. I don't, I don't think so. So I went down there. And by the time I got there, they told him I was coming and they were all gone. And that was all. And I, how many of you realize every time I got a call like that for a while, I was very skeptical. And I, I didn't want to not help people, but at the same time, I was taking advantage. I mean, it wasn't a lot of money. It was just one hotel room for one night. But still, it was just the whole thing where I, I anyway. Years later, or years later, I used to have uh, these students who, you know, you have different groups of students, and you try to reach out to them in the way they most need reached out to. And I had a group of surfer kids. I'm not a surfer. Never try to be and never act like that. But if you know, anybody know anybody who surfs? You know what the best time to surf is? First light. First light. You want to get there. The water's smoother. The waves are cleaner. Wind is down, so they're, it's not messed up. So it's a little bit of sacrifice for me because I'm picking kids up at 4 a.m. So we're on our way to, to go surfing, and we had stopped and got some donuts, right? There's got to be something in it for me. And so we're on our way there. I'm in the church van, and um, it, uh, we have... We were finding, trying to find a place to park or whatever, and then this guy shows up out of nowhere, like comes right out, right up to my window. My window was open. Like there's a dumpster there. I'm like, how could he even fit there? And he's, there's a guy in my window asking for money, you know, and, and he looked like he needed money. And we didn't have any money. We, we legitimately did not have any money. But I had not eaten my cinnamon roll. Anybody else like cinnamon rolls? All right. There will be cinnamon rolls in heaven, I'm sure. <laughs> That's going to happen. And not the cream cheese stuff. I don't know why y'all like that. That's not even real to me. That's not it. But I had a real cinnamon roll sitting right there. And I said, 
this, this did go through my mind, talking about hypocrisy on Sunday. It did go through my mind, like, I've got to give him this because all these kids are in the car. That did shoot through my mind. I said, no, I want to. I don't have any money. I'm giving him this. So I said, here, you can have my cinnamon roll. And he took that. He said, I don't want your cinnamon roll. And he threw it back in there. I want some money. <laughs> I said, well, we don't have no money. And I drove away. Oh, I was frustrated. I was boiling like he ruined my cinnamon roll. <laughs> it was on the floor of the van. And, you know, church vans, it, I could not eat that cinnamon roll. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. Well, then uh, at Sheffield, when I was a youth pastor at Sheffield all those years, um, we would, we would uh, each one of us as pastors, we'd be on call one day a week. And part of our responsibilities being on call was to take walk-ins. And where Sheffield is, if you don't know, it's, it's over there on, it would be 9th Street, but it's Winter Road. And um, we, don't, we don't get a ton of walk-ins, but it, I mean, it happens. Other churches probably in that neighborhood get more, but because of where it's located by the railroad tracks, you just don't get a ton. But we get some. But we had a secretary on staff who had grown up in, in the projects and come to church at Sheffield on the bus ministry. She had the gift of discernment. I, I believe legitimately that spiritual gift. Because people would walk in and we would have, it was our, it was when we were on call, we would be there, but she operated in that gift. It was an amazing gift she had. And people would walk in and she would just start asking them questions. And then I, I, I can't tell you how many times I was standing there with her and all of a sudden she'd say, I don't think this is true. I think this, and the person would be like, oh my goodness, how did you know that? I'm like, how did you know that? <laughs> I didn't see that. I didn't, what, did she, what did they say that made, made you think that? She said, nothing. I just felt like the Spirit was telling me this wasn't real. I mean, she was amazing. And then we, her and her, she got married, and her and her husband passed her church in Springfield now. And we were really, we suffered because we lost her. And I remember one time in particular, one of the pastors was on call, and he called me up, and he said, hey, will you go with me? We, this guy is here, and he says his car's out of gas, but... I don't think the story adds up. And I, I, I just don't, I want someone to go with me. Sure. And it was one of those deals. We drove around Northeast for, for like half hour before I said, I said, Pastor Willie, how long are we going to do this? This guy is definitely pulling our leg, you know, and he hops out of the van real quick and runs. And we're like, okay. So, so, friend in need, friend in need. Most of us struggle with that, don't we? And none of us want to be judging everybody at every minute. And you don't want to be questioning everybody's good motives because some people are legitimately in need. And when someone calls, you want to have a pure heart and be able to help from a pure heart. But there's times you've probably, like me, had times where you have been burnt, right? You want to help. We struggle with it. Who to give to, how much to give, when to give, how long do you keep giving, what's the best use of the money, how all that question comes in and you, you think about it. Well, one day Jesus was talking to some people and a religious leader came to him and he says, he's testing Jesus and he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That, that is our mission as a church. We boil it down to love God, love others. It encapsulates the entire gospel. In fact, Jesus says, Jesus says, you're right, do this and you will live. And the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? 
And he let that question hang there. And you've probably heard this before, but Jesus, he, he was so good at um, taking somebody's question and going way beyond their question, going to the heart of the question behind the question, or getting at the heart that was even in the question itself. Who is my neighbor? You know, the thing is that Jesus calls it out, and, and the, Luke, when he writes this, he calls him out, and he says, he wanted to justify his actions. It's funny because... When Jesus asks a question, most of the time our response is to justify our actions. Very few of us lay it all down and say, okay, you're right, I need to, I'm wrong. Often we just, we, we have that tendency to say, I'm good with Jesus until he starts to challenge the way I live. You know, we're good with him when he's right out there or he's dealing with somebody else. But when it starts to confront us and the way we value things and what's, what's, you know, where we spend our money or how much we give or who we give it to or what we do with our time or what did we allow our eyes to see. I mean, there's certain things where we kind of, we start to justify. We start to say, well, I'm good with all these other things, but not this. I think what he was really wanting is he was wanting to Jesus to tell him who he had to help and who he didn't have to help. His heart was wrong in the whole thing. We know that. We want to decide who deserves our help and how much of our niceness and how much of our kindness and when when our good attitude. And then we'll decide when we don't have to have a good attitude or when it's convenient for us or when it's inconvenient. You know, we, we in the church, we talk a lot of times about agape love, the agape God kind of love that's in the New Testament. That, that is what this is about, because that kind of love is unconditional. In other words, it doesn't matter how many times they ask or I'm not saying not being unwise with what you give. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is we like to put conditions on those things because we want to limit how much we have to do. And yet Jesus' love for us is totally unconditional. So what Jesus does is he, he takes them to a, to a um, he starts to tell a story. Before we look at this story, I, this is a very crude drawing and I apologize for it. Can you even read that? Okay. And, and what this does is it lay out, lays out for you the social hierarchy of the New Testament Jewish world for them. The social hierarchy. And before we even look at this, understand we all have our hierarchy, right? We have people that go in that middle circle for us. But this is how it worked out for them. In the Jewish hierarchy, the social hierarchy of the day... For them, social and religious hierarchy went, went together. They were hand in hand. And the priests would have held the highest position there, the highest position for a lot of reasons. For one reason, I'm, I'm, I'm not listing them in any particular order, but for one reason, they were educated. The vast majority of people were uneducated. The priests were educated. Now, for us here in America, it's hard for us to even conceptualize what that means. Because I would venture to say every single one of you can read. They couldn't read. So if you cannot read, how do you know what the Bible really says? All you really know is what they tell you it says. The power that, that was invested in them as priests was enormous. Because not only did they hold the power over you by being able to read, but, but you had to trust them that the way to God was the way they said was the way to God. You couldn't get to God by yourself because you didn't know how to get there because you could not read. They could read. That put them in a whole different strata of society than you. What also came along with that is wealth. And for them in their day, like a lot of people in our day, they assumed that wealth 
meant blessing from God, meant blessed by God, right with God. Poverty was not. The vast majority of people lived in poverty, so the priest was the pinnacle of all of that. But there's other things. They were clean. The first century, the, the first century world was very dirty. It wasn't very much pavement. People were living in dirt, um, a lot of disease. The priests were separate from all that. They didn't touch people. They weren't around commoners. It wasn't like that. They were at the very height. Not only that, being a priest, being in the religious uh, establishment there meant that you were graced and you were blessed by God, you were approved by God, you were holy and going to heaven, and for everybody else it was questionable. That next rung right there, the Levite, is a, is a biblical term, but it, what it means is a temple assistant. You would have had to have been from the tribe of Levi, so that would be the tribe way back in Moses' day that was tasked with taking care of all the temple. So that means everything from sweeping and cleaning to preparing the sacrifices to cleaning up afterward. They were in charge of all of that. But they were next in line because they worked in the church, per se. The next thing where it says Joseph Jew, don't get confused by the Joseph part. It just means the regular normal Jews, the, the class, the Jews that would have been the vast majority of Jews. Then the next section there would be the tax collectors, the outcasts, the obvious sinners. So that would have been you know, people who, you know, sell their bodies. The tax collectors were in, in league with the Roman government and taking money from their own countrymen, so they were despised. Then that next ring right there, the Samaritans. What those people were, were when, when, the, when the people of Israel were taken into captivity by Babylon and then Assyria, there were some Jews left in the area. They intermarried with the local people, the Canaanites themselves, and so that made them a half-breed, and then they also, it's more than that, though, because what they did is they took the Jewish religion and kind of changed some things and tweaked some things, and they changed the place of worship from Jerusalem. So that made them outcasts religiously. That made them outcasts um, ethnically. They were really despised. But then, anybody here Jewish? Okay, so that means all of us would be on that very outer ring as total non-Jews, way, 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 way outside the inner circle there. So that's the Jewish social structure. And that's the social structure. This, here's something to think about. In our day today, we talk about this kind of thing all the time, don't we? You hear about it on the news. You hear about a shooting. You hear about, you know, the, uh, you know, hear about race rights or, the, or the, the changes that have come through, you know, the different times in the world, in the country, in the history of our country. We talk about this kind of thing a lot. They did not. It was part of society. It just was. It was accepted. They never thought about it. They never thought about what class they were in. There was no way for them to move from one of those to the other. You had to be born into a priestly line to be a priest. You couldn't be a Levite if you weren't part of the, the tribe of Levi. You couldn't make yourself a Jew if you were not a Jew. You could become Jewish, like a Jewish religion, but you would still never be a Jew in that sense, an ethnic Jew. So there was, it wasn't like our society today where all of us have talked about this kind of thing or thought about it. This is the life they lived. The reason I say all that is because Jesus, in response to his question, who is my neighbor, you'll notice what he does is he doesn't get to the heart of the question. He goes beyond the question. So here's what Jesus does. He tells them a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. Now, some of you have been to Israel. How many have been there? Did any of you go from Jerusalem down to Jericho? Did you actually do that, travel that way? Oh, you went the other way around? Oh, okay. Well, regardless, 
You know what that looks like. I've never been there. I mean, I've seen pictures and stuff, but here's what happened. They go from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead by the side of the road. By chance, a priest came along, but he saw the man lying there. He's crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, that would be a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. At this point in the story, any good storyteller, and Jesus was a master at this, as he's telling the story, everybody in the crowd is, is, is putting themselves in the story. That's how we do in stories. They were putting themselves probably in the position of the man who was beaten because they wouldn't have been a priest and they wouldn't have been a Levite, most of them. They wouldn't have qualified for those things. But they would have identified with the man who was beaten and naked and all of that. And then Jesus twists it, something they didn't see coming. And he says, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. That would be first aid in the first century there. I would imagine at this point the crowd would have said, (gasps) There were some barriers crossed there. In their minds, I'm sure they're thinking, they're not even, they didn't even, it didn't even flinch when the priest and the Levite walked by. For us, we look at it and we think, why could, how could they walk by? They wouldn't have even flinched. They would have expected that. The unexpected part of the story is when the, the Samaritan touches and cares for this guy. So anyway, he bandages him up. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, well, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, go now and do the same. Do the same. Jesus always used these stories to teach. And it's a great teaching tool because because in the story, not only are there lessons to be learned, but, it, but it's different than just spitting out an answer. I struggle with that. I always just, you ask me something, I just tell you what I think. Boom, that's it. Conversation's done. Jesus didn't do that. He used it to let, he let the drama linger in the whole experience. He created even more drama the way he told the story. He created a drama where they're going to walk away talking about this story for over and over. There's scandal in this story. Not the scandal we see, but the scandal in it from their culture that this even happened. No way a Samaritan would ever do that. And they're probably going on and on talking about that, that part. He did that intentionally because they're not going to forget that. They're going to keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And it's going to teach and teach and teach for days and days and days. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. You guys remember, not that you would ever watch this movie. I'm not saying that. But remember when Pulp Fiction came out? Do you remember the buzz about it? Because there were no heroes in the story. It was an anti-hero movie. And since then, there have been a ton of movies like that where there's really nobody good in the whole movie. And you start cheering for the, for the least bad person character in the movie. That's how this was. There was no good guy in the story. At least not to the Jewish mind. Because the Samaritan couldn't have been the good guy. But Jesus made him the good guy. It would have been something that in their minds, culturally, religiously, personally, ethnically, would have been such a cognitive dissonance for them. It's funny, because if you think about the characters in the movie, the robbers, they knew all about robbers. That would have been a common occurrence for them. It wasn't safe to travel, especially at night, especially alone. You would never do that kind of thing. Traveling was dangerous, because robbers could be anywhere. A certain man 
In this verse, in the New Living, it says Jewish. In other versions, it doesn't list him as being Jewish because they would have assumed he was Jewish because Jesus was Jewish. He was telling this to a Jewish audience. The religious part, we already talked about the priest and the temple assistant a little bit, and then the Samaritan and then the innkeeper. But let's talk about the priest and the temple assistant for a minute. Usually they get off the hook. Can you tell me why they get off the hook? I know you know. I hear some mumbling. They were probably doing something important. We would assume that, right? Because they're priests and Levites. That's right. They would be ceremonially defiled, unclean, if they would have touched him for a number of reasons. One, he was bloody. They couldn't touch blood. Or they would be unclean for a certain amount of time. In other words, they couldn't go into the temple and do their job. They couldn't be there in the temple, right? And if he was left for dead, they didn't know if he was dead or not. Touching a dead body was also forbidden for them. So a lot of times, they get off the hook for that. A little problem with that, though. Where were they going? Yeah, the temple was the other way. So if they're coming from the temple, they already did their job. And the way it worked during that time is they were on a schedule. Do you remember when um, the Bible talks about uh, Simeon? prophesied over Jesus, the baby Jesus, when he's eight days old. Remember what it's, how it introduces that? It happened to be Simeon's turn to be in the temple because they all took turns. There were so many priests and Levites during this era that they had, they had plenty of time to become ceremonial clean again. They don't get off the hook for that. Plus, what were they doing? Where did they come from? They just came from church. That would be like one of us sitting in church and then, uh, well, it, it, would, it wouldn't even be like one of us. It'd be a pastor preaching in church about love God, love others. Jesus did that intentionally. The, 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 the young ruler or the, the religious ruler who asked the question, Jesus asked him, what does the law say? He repeated, love the Lord your God with the heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said that. That would have been fresh on their minds. And did the priest and Levite enact that, live that out? No, they didn't. The religion was hollow and, and, and hypocritical. It was a lifeless religion. They were just playing church. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that. They knew what the law said. These guys would have known the law. That right out of the, the book of Exodus here. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that has strayed away, enemy, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. They would have known this law. And if that law is true for a donkey, it would have been true for even a Samaritan. They were literally violating their own law. Not, not only spiritual law, but the actual law itself. It's just so sad. But we never do that, right? We would never do that. Serving people is an act of worship. I think we forget sometimes how close those two things are tied. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can almost measure your love for God by your love for your neighbor. They didn't have that because he didn't qualify as a neighbor to them. It's so funny how, how Jesus just uses all that. We, we already talked about the, the Samaritans, but something I wanted to point out here about this is they, the Jews considered them an inferior mixed race. Does that sound familiar? You guys know your history, right? Who considered the Jews that? The Nazis, right? And now our current, our current Islamo-fascists, they teach their children all the time that Jews are descendants of pigs and of mixed race and all sorts of weird, heinous things. 
Who would have thought all these years later? Think about the compassion in this story. Obviously, it's not in the priest and the Levite. They did what? Remember what it said exactly they did? They passed by on the other side. They literally, volitionally made a choice to walk away. And imagine what they did is what we do a lot of times. We don't look. Because you don't want to make eye contact, right? Because then what happens? Then you're engaged in the situation. So you don't look. And I, I know how that is. I mean, I, I remember years ago, this stupid, well, I'm going to tell you anyway because I already started. But years ago, I was doing a ministry in Brooklyn um, with a ministry down there. And we were down there for a few weeks. And I was in college. And I got, me and another guy got called into the direct, the pastor's office. And he said, look, we got a problem here. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, the word on the street is, you guys are cops or gay? I'm like, what? <laughs> Why? What's going on? He goes, because you keep smiling and looking everybody in the eye. You can't do that here. I'm like, oh, oh, good to know. <laughs> yeah, good to know. What are we supposed to do? Just keep your eyes down. Just look away. Just walk right by people. Okay. All right. That's what the priest and Levi did. What were they communicating? I don't care about you. You don't matter to me. You don't exist to me. You're not important to me. I can't, I'm not going to help you. That's what they did. They passed by. But what did the Samaritan do? Do you remember what it said exactly he did? I want to read it to you right out of the book. Remember what it said he did? Going over to him. Going over to him. He went out of his way to actually help. He moved toward, moved toward the hurting man. You know what that reminds me of is anytime you see a, well, nowadays, sadly, like a terrorist act. I mean, I was thinking natural disaster, but terrorist act. Who do you see running toward it? Our first responders, right? You see all the people running away, and then in the crowd, you'll see those who, who know their mission, and their mission is to help and save, and they're running toward danger. And in this case, he went toward the hurting man, toward the hurting man. You know what that requires? That requires real love to do that. And what's cool about it is, is because when you care like that, you move toward the hurting. You actually choose, just as much the priest and the Levite chose to turn away, he chose to turn toward. He went toward. It takes a move from where you are to where they are. It takes you initiating contact. And you can't wait for it to come from them. You take it to them. And I think that's really a definition of real compassion, that you see a need and you move toward the need. You move toward it to build relationships. Relationships don't happen just by themselves. It just doesn't work that way. Here, here's something else to think about. I never thought about this till preparing for the sermon. The Samaritan moved towards somebody who, if he were to be conscious, would have never given him the time of day. I never thought of that before. And to add on, pile on, somebody who would not have done that for him. He wouldn't have done that for him. That just made my heart sink when I thought of that. Not only did that Samaritan move towards someone when just looking at him, he knew already would have despised him had, and probably not allowed him to help him had he been conscious and wouldn't have done the same for him. I wonder sometimes for, for some of us who feel like maybe you don't have um, the relationships you want and you're waiting maybe for someone else to initiate. Maybe it's this kind of thing that you need to move toward those in need. And it's scary, I get it, because you could be rejected and you could be hurt again. And it could be, someone could take you for a night at a hotel. 
It happens. I love, too, as you, as you read through the story, he, he gave care to that man above and beyond what I think most of us would do. He, he didn't do the typical kind of Hollywood thing where he just, you know, gave money. He didn't do that. If you read through what he did, is the Bible says that he stopped and he took care of his wounds. He got into the middle of his hurt. He got literally dirty with, with probably blood and dirt both. He bound up all his wounds. The Bible said that he was beaten and his clothes were taken. He was naked. He gave him his clothes. He would have given him something. It did, it, it's not as if this didn't cost him anything. It did cost him. There's people all around us who are wounded and need. And sometimes what they need is more than we have. But I'll tell you, as you move toward the hurting, an ear goes a long way. You may not be a counselor and nobody's asking you to be that, but an ear goes a long way. He, he gave him his clothes. And then I like this part, this thought about it. it, it it's really you before me. He put him on his own donkey, and he walked. I, I promise you the Jewish guy wouldn't have done that. Had the roles been reversed, that would not have happened. He put his needs before his own. It was personal sacrifice, personal cost. It reminds me of the golden rule, do, do for others what you would have them do for you. The time, think about the time. I never really read it that carefully before. Do you realize he stayed the night with him? He stayed the night. He didn't just drop him off and I got to go. The Bible says he stayed the night, and in the morning, he paid the extra money. In the morning, he did that. He took the time. People take time. People who are hurting, it takes time. And, and then he gave without limit. That's the part, too, that blows my mind. And, and not to be, this is not, I'm not talking about, you know, Jews being thrifty or anything. Th these were sworn mortal enemies of the Samaritans, Jews and Samaritans. It was a Jewish innkeeper, and he basically gave him his credit card and said, Spend whatever it takes. There's big risk involved there. That's a big deal. A big deal. Uh, you know, thinking about all those things, the time, the, the cost, the you before me, all of that. And I think about how often there's been times where I've seen someone in need and I thought, I did the math in my mind and I thought, I don't have time to help them right now. What I'm doing is more important. I'm on my way somewhere. And there have literally been times where I've been driving and thought, the whole way, wherever I was going, I kept thinking in my mind, is this more important? I'm committed to this. I have to do this, but I should have. Man. Uh, John Wesley said, uh, do, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. To, to simplify that, you might just narrow that down to do what you can when you can. Can you do everything? Nope. You can't. You can't. I'm not saying you have to do everything, and nobody's wanting to saddle you with guilt at all. But do what you can when you can. Because sometimes you can. Sometimes you can't. But sometimes you can. That's all I'm saying. So many people came up to me after, on Sunday after the work day and said, I can't believe I forgot it was the work day. And then other people said, one, one, the funniest story I heard after that, one of the people said, yeah, you know, Saturday, remember Saturday morning? And I'm like, yeah. I wasn't thinking about the work day. They were telling me a story. They said, yeah, I got up and it was just a beautiful day. And my wife and I, we thought, ah, what are we going to do today? And so we went to this one farmer's market and it was no good. And we said, hey, let's go to another one. We went to another one. And, and I'm following right along with the story. I thought there was a point in the story. And they're like, and he's like, can you believe we missed the work day? 
and didn't actually do anything. I'm like, oh, I didn't know where you were going with that story. But you know what? There were other people who could do it that day. It's okay. Because you do what you can when you can. I don't expect everybody to be everywhere all the time. Just when you can, do what you can. <laughs> so who's your neighbor? Let me, let me ask you to do this. Dave, you put some music on. And if you just shut your eyes for a minute. I'm asking you to shut your eyes because I just want to ask you some rhetorical questions and just let you think through this for a minute and let you, between you and God, you decide how this hits you and what it la- where it lands with you for you. Who is your neighbor? See, what, what the man, what the, what, the, what the religious ruler guy was asking was, who and how much do I have to love? That's what he was asking. Jesus didn't answer that question. He answered the question by by saying, who is your neighbor? And talking about the neighbor, the real neighbor. See, really, love never asks, how far do I have to go? Love asks, what can I do and how can I help? And who needs help? That's what love does. Love never meets the other person halfway. It always does 100%, no matter what. The Samaritan's actions were really a true demonstration of love because he had no relationship with that Jewish man that was hurt. He had nothing to gain from the, his actions. Instead, everything he had was to lose. He was going to lose time and money. And like I said, that man probably wouldn't have done the same thing for him if the situation were reversed. So all this tonight is this. Who's your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Who is it that needs you maybe today? Maybe God is just preparing each of us for an encounter with somebody tomorrow or the next day or the next day. My prayer is that when we have that chance to be a neighbor, that we would be a neighbor. Father, I pray for each of us that you would, you would help us with that. That no matter how many times that we may have been disappointed or, or taken advantage of, that you would open our hearts anew to give and to serve and to love everybody that you put in our path, whether it's somebody in our house or in our neighborhood or our church or school or work or wherever we encounter people. God, I pray that you would give us discernment on who to help when and how much we can help and that you would, you would then give us the resources we need to do that help. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you tonight. You're welcome to stay and pray as long as you want or, or you're dismissed. God bless you.